And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome back to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday, second best day of the week. That also means that Michael Leibowitz joins me this morning. Talk a little bit about Fed, bonds, interest rates, inflation, all that. We've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Lots of Fed speakers out here over the course of the last couple of days. Jerome Powell actually giving a speech today. What will, will he say something that, uh, you know, changes the tone, so to speak, in terms of what the Fed has recently been saying about Fed policy and um, are they paused, right? So that's going to be the, the big topic everybody's looking at today is that speech in particular from him. Does he change the rhetoric any? And of course, this would, would certainly be interesting um, given the drop that we've had in bond yields over the last few days. Now, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked a lot recently about, you know, the, 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 a lot of the memes that are running around these, these narratives. And we've spent a lot of time this week talking about narratives in the markets and what's driving investment decisions or these big narratives that you, know, you hear on YouTube channels and things like that. So you got to be careful about those narratives. One's been lately is the debts and the deficits. And uh, you know, that's why interest rates are just going to keep going up because of debts, you know, this kind of growth in the debt, growing the growth in deficit. And in fact, you know, right now we're going to be looking at about a one and a half trillion dollar deficit going into next year. That's not new. Um, you know, we had a big reduction in the deficit following 2020 because we didn't renew all that spending. So, you know, we had a massive deficit uh, going back in 2020 because of all the spending that we did. Nobody was worried about the deficit then because we were sending monies to households, right? So that's fine. Now, all of a sudden, we reversed that deficit because we didn't renew the, renew the spending. Of course, the Biden administration taking credit. So, hey, we reversed the deficit. No, you didn't really reverse the, reverse the deficit. You just didn't keep the spending going. Well, now just the normal trend of spending and, uh, and, and debt needed debt issuance for that spending is continuing. And so the deficit continues to increase. But that's been going on for 30 years. So one of the problems with the narrative, as we've talked about before on the show, is why does it matter today? Why now? You know, it's been going on for 30 years and all of a sudden today the debt matters. Well, the only reason the debt and the deficit matters now is because interest rates are up. and Everybody's trying to give it a reason. And this is the problem about narratives. Nobody cared about the debts and deficits during the Obama administration. We added $9 trillion to the debt. Nobody cared about it then because interest rates were zero, right? Nobody cared about it during the Trump administration because interest rates were zero. And we added another $9 trillion. Now we care about it because interest rates are up. So again, always keep in mind what the narrative is and what is actually going on in the bond market. So why are interest rates up? Because inflation's up. Why is inflation up? Because we put $5 trillion worth of liquidity into the economy all in a year. <laughs> Said checks to households. People went out and bought stuff. That's why you have inflation. If inflation goes up, interest rates go up. We had a pop in economic growth. If you have stronger economic growth, you have higher interest rates. Those are all just part and parcel of each other, as we've talked about here on the show many times. We're going to, and, and we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a whole lot more in the future as we continue to go along. But, you know, this is just important that we keep in mind what drives certain environments and what drives certain things. And again, you got to step back from some of these mainstream narratives because again, when you're watching the media or you, some guy on YouTube, whatever it is, some guy talking on a radio show at six o'clock in the morning, you got to be careful 
about you know that commentary because a lot of it's there to get you to click, right? I want you to watch the show, I want you to read my newsletter, I want you to read my blog, whatever it is. Yeah, I you know got to get that. So the the more dire the headline is, the more people will tend to read it because everybody kind of you know it's like watching a train wreck. Everybody wants to see it, right? Don't want to be in it, just want to watch it. Um, so anyway, just kind of keep that in mind. Again, this is, but again, you know, interest rates have come down a lot over the last couple of days uh, in particular. And now the question is, is did that loosen financial conditions to a point? And we have seen financial conditions reverse here a bit, become easier. Mortgage rates have dropped over the last couple of days. Mortgage applications ticked up because of that. So is that reversal in, in financial conditions where financial conditions are becoming easier is that a concern to the Fed? The Fed was, the, one of the reasons the Fed was being a little bit more dovish over the last few meetings was because higher interest rates and that big surge in interest rates that we had during uh, the last three months was doing the work for them. But now that if it reverses, does the Fed also have to change their position as well? This is what we're gonna find out. Uh, of course, that's what we'll talk about a little bit more today. But here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, Again, markets uh, popped off another positive day yesterday, and we've had a we've had now the longest back-to-back -back streak of positive days uh, since 2021. So it's been a very very strong rally here over the course of the last few days. Um, we've we've done this broken above the 50-day moving average very clearly here. Um, now we're testing this kind of 100-day moving average right above it. So again, that is going to be a little bit of resistance here. Also, as we talked a, a, a bit yesterday. In particular, um, you know, this market's working within this kind of downtrend channel. And, and again, my screen wouldn't keep jumping around, uh, in this downtrend channel that we've been building now over the course of the last really three months, we're right at the top of that downtrend channel right now. Uh, we're on a buy signal, which continues to be very positive here, suggests that markets do want to go higher. Uh, but we are very overbought now. The RSI is now back to an overbought level. Uh, which suggests that in this near-term run, we should expect a little bit of a correction. We kind of went through the process of what the next month or so may look like yesterday. So if you haven't seen that video, jump back to before the bell on our website on, on the YouTube channel. And uh, I kind of go through kind of layout of, of kind of the, the pre-Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving, early December, end of the year rally type setup. Um, but again, <clears throat> you know, I would expect here a bit of a pullback. Importantly, we kind of want to see the market try to hold somewhere around this 40, kind of 4,300 level. Uh, if we can do that, kind of consolidate here a bit, work off some of this short-term overbought condition, then that should set the market up potentially for a little bit more rally into the end of the year. Um, but again, there's, there's lots of, still a lot of concerns out here uh, in the marketplace. Um, but we are getting through earnings season. Earnings season has been okay. Um, it hasn't been fantastic, but earnings and revenue seem to have troughed in the last quarter. So we're now beginning to see a little bit of improvement in sales and earnings. But again, that's a little bit deceptive because the majority of the earnings growth is coming from those big cap uh, big mega cap seven stocks, actually earnings for the kind of the, the, the sub half of the S&P 500 really hasn't been that strong. But again, those large big mega cap companies are kind of dragging the overall earnings trend up with them. But again, um, you know, the earnings season came in okay. Um, winners weren't really rewarded that well in a lot of cases. Some were, but mostly not. Uh, if they missed earnings or estimates in any type of fashion, well, 
they got penalized pretty badly. So uh, that's been that kind of an earnings season. But that's now coming to an end. We've gotten through a big bulk of that. We're still wrapping up a few more. We still have NVIDIA out later this month. Um, that's in the big kind of the, the top 10 stocks there. But that's kind of the last big reporter that we've got coming uh, towards the end of November. But out of that, outside of that, now it's kind of back to the economic data, which again is showing some signs of weakness, but it's not terrible, right? We're not seeing you know massive recessionary signs right now. So this market is kind of just kind of holding in here uh, at the moment. Um, but again, as we kind of get ready to move into the end of the year, I would expect uh, this kind of market rally to continue. There's a lot of need by professional managers to play a bit of catch up here. Uh, particularly this year, there's still a very big gap between the S&P 500 and the, the equal weighted index. So a lot of managers um, that don't have just exposure to seven stocks are trailing the markets this year. Uh, so there's going to be a need to play a bit of catch up, which should provide a bit of lift to the markets through year in. Now, once we get to next year, as I've been saying, you know, it's, it's a whole different ballgame. Goldman says no recession. It's an everything bull market next year. A lot of other indicators suggest that that's probably not going to be the case. What actually happens, I have no idea. We'll talk about that when we get there. But for right now, markets look pretty good. Look to take a little bit of profits here and, and use a bit of a correction here to add exposure if you need. Uh, when we come back from the, uh, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Uh, when we come back, we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz to talk about the Fed and what's coming up. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So this morning, Robinhood, the uh, trading application uh, for stocks, is reporting earnings this morning. Uh, they have opened their uh, conference call this morning, the earnings call, by saying, you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips, and there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You've lost that love and feeling. Robinhood has a 16% drop in users for their platform. And again, you know, and, and this is something that... You know, we talked about, you know, over the last couple of years, numerous times that, you know, it was, a, a, you know, when the Robinhood app came to fruition, it was a great idea, right? We're going to democratize finance and we're going to, you know, just get this app into the hands of, you know, every kind of teen and, and young and, you know, young person out there. And it, and it seemed like a great idea, right? I mean, people could go open up an account very easy. They could trade for free. And, you know, and make tons of money, right? It was great. So we had the whole AMC saga and the GameStop saga. In fact, they've now made a, a movie about GameStop on Netflix. Um, but, you know, what we talked about then and, you know, what we said would eventually come is that that all sounds great until you lose all your money, which you will do when you're gambling in the markets. And, you know, this is one of the problems that I have with free, you know, no commissions. I think there should be commissions. I think there should be a commission on every stock trade placed in the markets. And the reason for that is, is that it slows down the pace of trading. If it costs you money to trade something, you're going to slow down your trading because you've got to factor in that cost. And, you know, hold times for stocks back in the late 70s when commissions were very high back then um, was about six years. Now we're down to less than six months. Well, when there's no barrier to trade, it sounds great, right? I mean, you know, you know it's like, I, I should be able to trade for free. 
that sounds great, except when you lose all your money, and which happens more often than not. And that's what's now happened to a vast majority of these users on Robinhood, and why they've just given up. It's like, oh, the game's rigged. I can't win. And, you know, you know, I just, you know, lose all my money, and you know. But they, you know, you were doing stupid stuff. You weren't investing. You were gambling. And, you know, this has been a, a problem, really, and, and Mike can attest to this because he, he and I were both in the markets back in the, the 90s. Um, but back then, you, you, you paid, you know, when you traded, there was a pretty hefty commission. We used to trade in quarter points, <laughs> then we went to eighth points, <laughs> and then we went to pennies. Um, but there was a very hefty commission to trade, and, and that was okay, right? You factored that into the cost. Um, but you at least it was transparent, right? You knew what the cost was. You knew what you were paying the broker to execute the trade for you, right? It's, you know, I'm going to buy this stock. It's going to cost me 25 bucks or whatever it was to trade it. But you knew what it was. You think you get free trades. You're not getting free trades. They're not free. You you just you may not be paying for them visibly where you can see that commission, but you're still paying for the trade. You're paying for it by the cost of the execution because these are filtered through companies like Citadel, et cetera, that are blocking these orders and trading in front of them and uh, affecting the price. And we've gone through that whole structure here on the show before. But there is no such thing as there's no free lunch. Right. But I do think it's interesting is that, you know, it, it took really kind of two bad years. You know, 2022 wasn't a great year. This has not been a great year for the markets, uh, you know, despite what the S&P looks like. The S&P is up, you know, 14% for the year. That sounds great. It's seven stocks. The, you know, the bottom 493, if you take a look at the equal weight S&P 500 index, it's not done much this year. It's been very volatile. You've spent a lot of the year in negative territory. You're about flat right now. Uh, you know, it's not been a great year for stocks. Bonds have been, uh, you know, have been under a lot of pressure. There's not really been anything that's made you money this year. So it's not surprising that, you know, these young investors have just kind of given up and gone back to doing other stuff. But I just thought the earnings announcement this morning from Robinhood was interesting because it was just kind of a, a function of time until we got there. And now people are putting down the app and going on to do other stuff with their life because either they have given up trading or just have no money to trade with probably a combination of both. Mike, go ahead. Well, I was going to add to that. I'm wondering about DraftKings because one of those meme stocks back then was DraftKings, mm -hmm. but I think, and I don't, I haven't looked at them, but I think their revenue has kept up. Yeah. They haven't seen a drop off If anything. I think their revenue may have actually increased since then. So, so there's a company that is probably a lot more stable, at least for the time being here to stay, especially as more and more states make uh, sports gambling legal. So it's kind of a tale Which, of two memes. Yeah, isn't it kind of interesting though? I mean, you know, gambling on you know gambling on sports, right? Um, is doing okay, right? There's nothing wrong with that. DraftKings peaked at about ninety dollars a share back in 2020. It's trading about thirty six right now. Uh, so it's definitely taken a hit, but it's still doing okay. But isn't it interesting, though, there's really not that big of a difference between speculating or gambling on sports and, and gambling on stocks, but we prefer to gamble on sports. We admit, we readily admit that we're, that we're speculating and gambling when we bet on a game of football or a game of baseball, whatever it is. But we want to call it investing when we do it in stocks. I just think it's I, I think it's ironic because <laughs> you're gambling on both. It's just one we just admit that we're doing it. 
And, and it, what's interesting is if you go look on the sites and there's no cost, there's no fee, but they have what they call a VIG. So it's basically how much you get paid for the bet. Mm-hmm. And if, I don't know the exact number, but again, it's like 10 or 15% they charge you. Yeah, it's not free. So there is no free th- lunch. That they take out. I mean, that's a huge commission that you're paying. So even if you can go 500 in your sports gambling, you're going to lose money. Yeah, You have to do better than 500, which given odds is over the long run, except for very few, almost impossible. Yeah. And I just, I, I, again, I just kind of find the whole thing fascinating. And it is interesting, though. I, I've been wondering how long it would take before Robinhood started seeing a fairly sharp drop off in users. And, and nearly 20, and nearly one fifth of your users, 16%, uh, you know, nearly one fifth of your users have now stopped using your app. That's not insignificant. <laughs> right. And I think there's. I think there's also some sort of admission there by Robinhood users that they really don't know what they're doing, that they were, you know, riding these meme stocks. Mm-hmm. And once those gave up, they they don't know the difference between Apple and more mainstream stocks yeah. and how to invest. Well, so they've kind of given and, up. And, well, and again, you know, but this is, you know, I was talking about this on the show uh, yesterday with uh, either yesterday or, or, or Tuesday. But, you know, it, it's interesting um, because. You know, a lot of people invest money and they, they really don't understand basic fundamentals of companies, right? You know, price, what's a price to sales ratio? What's a price to earnings ratio? Right. How do you cal- the, calculate the earnings yield? You know, um, you know what's a debt, to, a debt to equity ratio? Those type of things, price to book value. Um, they really don't know these things. And then they really don't understand. You know, it's interesting. I get a lot of emails say, hey, you know, Lance, I'll watch your, your Before the Bell channel. I like all the technical analysis. I really don't understand anything about it. <laughs> you know, but so right, if you don't right. understand the fundamentals it, and you don't understand some basic technicals, if you're investing your capital in companies, how are you doing it? Right. You're are you just picking names that people talk about on television? Oh, Apple's up today. So I'm buying that. Um, right. Well, you know, that's that's kind of the problem is that, you know, you if you're just doing that, you're just gambling. You're not investing. And, and I love the argument that some some stock is too expensive or too cheap. So. Like Apple, for instance, is what one hundred eighty a share. Right. Is that cheap or expensive? That that number is meaningless. If there was one share of Apple, it would be worth almost two trillion dollars. <laughs> if there were forty trillion shares of Apple, it would be a penny stock. Either way, it's the same exact company with the same exact cash flows and earnings. So, you know, I think a lot of people ascribe value to the price. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's cheap. It's down to 20. It was right. 40. Well, that's not a meaningful number. It It's all the fundamentals behind it. How much money do they make? How much? What are their cash flows like? Do they have debt? What are their new products? Who's their competition? Do they have some sort of moat around their products? And 40,000 other factors to help figure out what a stock is worth. Well, I, I think that's a fantastic point, Mike, because Robinhood right now is trading at $8 a share-ish, $8.50 a share. That's a cheap stock, right? Because it's $8.50. Right. right. We it's, should buy some. We should, except it's trading at 102 times forward P.E. There you go. Right. So it's it's not, even though it's $8, it's not a cheap stock. And, and that's... And that's Mike's point is, you know, the price of the stock, you know, if, if you know, Berkshire Hathaway trades at, a, what, what, 140 grand uh, a share, yeah, <laughs> whatever yeah. it is, that's a cheap stock. But right. uh, you, you can't, most people can't even afford to buy one share. So they, they have to buy the, the B shares, but you can't buy, you can't buy the A class share. 
Um, but, you know, this is why it's important to understand the fundamentals and do your homework when you're investing in anything. And, you know, this has been but Mike, this has been a really tough year, though, because, you know, value stocks haven't worked. Uh, you know, stocks that right. have good values and good fundamentals, they haven't worked this year. The stocks that are trading at, you know, 20, 30, 40 times price to sells like NVIDIA are doing great. It's been a, but this has been a very tough year for that. And that's why technicals are equally important because that measures momentum and psychology and sentiment. And, it, you know, Robinhood has a, what would you say, 100 PE? Yeah. Well, maybe it can go to 200 if the momentum and sentiment are there. And a value stock that has a PE of 10 can go to a PE of six. So you have to combine the value with the sentiment of the market, what the market likes, what the market doesn't like, and just put it all together. And yeah. it's, an, it's an incredibly hard task. And there's no guarantee it works. <laughs> you know, yep. and this has been a good year for that. I mean, again, when you take a look at, at the market where we are now, um, you know, bonds have been tough this year. Stocks have overall, uh, outside of a, a handful, have been tough. It's just been a tough year to, to, to manage money. Uh, that will change. Uh, we will get into a trending market once again, and, and dividend stocks will work or value stocks will work, whatever it'll be. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, we just got to get through that. But a lot of that is going to hinge on, you know, policy, um, particularly monetary policy and what happens next. And we'll talk about that when we come back from the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. Michael Leibowitz joining me as well. Uh, today. So over the last couple of days, we've had a few Fed speakers um, this week, and that's been kind of following up on the latest FOMC meeting. They came out of blackout, and as soon as they got past the FOMC meeting, uh, we've had kind of a rash of speakers coming out. Today, though, uh, Jerome Powell uh, has a speech this morning as well, so potentially that could move the market here a little bit. But, you know, interest rates have been uh, falling pretty sharply now over the course, uh, really since the last FOMC meeting, as the Fed kind of made it a little bit more clear that they are probably done hiking rates, at least for now. They have, of course, as we've said before here on the show, they're going to leave that one rate hike hanging out there. They're not going to say they're, they're done. They'll never say that. They'll just, you know, if we need to hike rates some more, we'll do that. Um, but most likely for now, at least at the moment, they appear to be done. That's what the market's been kind of uh, uh, breathing into this uh, here over the last few days. But, uh, Mike, there's been, uh, as I said, there's been quite a few Fed speakers. Most of them, uh, outside of Neil Kashkari, uh, really kind of seem to be toting the line here that, uh, you know, yields are doing their job for them um, at this moment, at least on, on interest rates. And, uh, you know, they you know they are kind of on a wait and see approach. Well, you know, any any interesting takeaways you saw? No, no, I, I think you're right. And I think what's interesting is that Jerome Powell at his press conference about, you know, a week and a half ago, week ago, 
said something to the effect that lower stock prices, higher bond yields, and a stronger dollar are helping the Fed do their job for them. Since then, the dollar's been weaker, stocks have gone up, and yields have gone down. So I want to see if he changes his tone a little bit, if he tries to push bond yields a little higher, stocks a little lower in his speech today to see if he's uncomfortable with what's going on in the markets. Because in their opinion, it is what what we've seen over the last, you know, called 10 days is a little bit more inflationary. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that could be interesting is he probably has maybe not the CPI report, but a very good indication of where it's going to what what the data is going to look like. I think that comes out uh, midweek next week. So if he makes if he alludes to inflation in, in some way that that may seem a little different than what we've been hearing, that may tell you that he has that report and it's telling him something that we don't know yet. So, uh, you know, and, and this could just be he, he gives speeches all the time mm -hmm. and all the time they're they're promoted by the uh, by the media as Jerome Powell speaking, you got to you got to listen to what he's going to say. But a lot of times he just talks about other things like regulatory issues or women in finance. He just spoke about, you know, there's a lot of other issues that he talks about. So he may not even address the economy or monetary policy at this point. Right. And, and again, it is interesting, you know, uh, when you and I were coming up through the ranks back in the 80s and the 90s, you know, if you went down the street and asked people who the Fed Reserve chairman is, people go, what's the Fed Reserve? Uh, you know, right. Nobody knew. And, you know, now they're, you know, probably more popular than the president, right? You know, you ask people who the president is, man, they're not so sure. But asking who the Fed Reserve chairman is, they know exactly who that is. Right. And I certainly don't remember all the Fed speakers speaking. I, I remember it yeah. being Greenspan and maybe the vice chair. And that was it. I don't remember one speech after another. Yeah. You know, every day there's three or four speeches coming out of the Fed, if not more. And, and I'm sure they happened back then. It's just that nobody publicized them because nobody really cared. Um, right now. But, you know, be, but because now monetary policy is so front and center of this market that and, and that's been the driver for the market for the last uh, 13 years. Right? And the economy and the, and the economy. Co correct. Um you know, and that that's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of situation because that is a very, you know, when we talk about this time is different, that is a very different structure. We've never had monetary policy being such a driver of the overall economy and markets as we've had in the last 13 years. And now markets have become right. adapted to that. And the question is, is can you ever go back? You know, we, you know, you, you and I long for the days where just, you know, you buy stocks based on fundamental values and, uh, you get rewarded for that over time, but that hasn't been the case in 13 years. And you have to ask yourself if, if that's ever going to be the case again. Doesn't seem like it. I mean, you know, we you're right. In 20, 2008 is when it all sort of changed. The Fed has always been somewhat aggressive in helping the economy, helping markets, supporting markets, trying to dampen markets, trying to dampen the economy. Uh, you know, you can make a good case that they, in part, created the crash in 1929 by avoiding a crash in 1927. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many other incidents along the way where the Fed uh, has led to market volatility. But 2008 seems to be a little different 
And that was the introduction of QE. The Fed was always doing some sort of QE. They were buying bonds, selling bonds, but this was a much more uh, well-communicated plan to buy bonds with a schedule, amounts, and uh, timeframes. And you know, we can argue all day whether it was needed in 2008 or nine, and it certainly saved some banks. Uh, who knows, you know, it probably saved the stock market to some degree. Who knows where we would have been, you know, two years later, may not have mattered. But but what followed QE2, QE3, QE4 during periods where there wasn't even a recession, uh, I think was what really altered the, uh, you know, the the state the, the, the where policy hits the markets and the economy, mm-hmm. especially the markets and keeping rates at zero for the large majority of that, you know, between 2009, 2008 and 2020, 2022 um, has just changed the face of finance. And, you know, if you think about it, there are people that are now in their 30s that have been in this business for 10 years and that's all they know. So, you know, they're, they're somewhat seasoned at this point, and their seasoning is all all about a Fed that that does everything for the market, that you have to follow the Fed. You have to know what the Fed's going to do next. You have to think about every adjective and verb that the that Jerome Powell uses at a press conference. You know, you, we look at the statement for these slight word changes that are really meaningless. Right. And the market reads so much into it. And that's a very dangerous state because you're really putting a lot of potential volatility into one person or one being's hands. And, you know, as we've seen, that can work out really well for investors and can work out really poor for investors. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is and this is kind of an interesting thing, you know, over the last uh, really kind of seven, eight trading days, uh, you know, yields have fallen sharply. Stock prices have rallied sharply. And, you know, going into the FOMC meeting, Stock prices were down sharply. Interest rates were rallying very, you know, were uh, sorry, interest rates were rising up towards 5%. And at the FOMC meeting, the Fed said, hey, look, yields are doing our job for us. We've got stock prices that are down. That's eroding consumer confidence. That's tightening financial conditions because people feel poor. Uh, but just in the just since that meeting, um, we've now had this, you know, big drop in yields and this big surge in the market, which, you know, is loosening financial conditions. And, and you know, it seems that the Fed may be kind of getting themselves into a trap of, you know, I've got to keep this kind of pressure on the markets and this pressure on yields. But at the same time, I don't want to cause a recession and I don't want to have a big collapse in the market. You know, so it's a really kind of fine, you know, kind of this fine line that they're kind of walking right here. But, you know, we've talked about, you know, this before is that the markets, by trying to anticipate, you know, Fed rate cuts and those type of things is actually putting the Fed in a much worse position to keep, you know, yields where they are for longer to try to fight this inflation fight. Now, I also, Lance, I think there may be an unknown, an unseen that that we don't know. Because various comments from the Fed allude to a, a quick softening of the economy. We, we in our daily commentary, we've talked about these big investor whales, Drunken Miller, Ackman, uh, Bill Gross, that claim the economy is slowing much more rapidly than people appreciate. And um, I want to say Drunken Miller thinks we'll be in a recession this quarter. And some of the other big investors are also 
concerned. So, you know, we go through the data there. You know, we certainly see signs of some trend changes and some slowing. That's that's obvious in some data. Even employment is starting to come to to loosen up a little bit, the labor market. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I just wonder if the Fed sees something that's really concerning them and they may let the stock market continue to go. They may let yields continue to fall because it is stimulative and it may offset you know, may help them with a soft landing. Yeah, let me let me hold you there. We're about to hit a break, but I want to read this statement from Austin Goolsby and, and let you just comment on going out to the break. The historical evidence suggests that this is Austin Goolsby of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. The historical evidence suggests that long rates, even more than short rates, have a substantial effect on real economic performance in a number of predictable areas, construction, investment, consumer durables. If that is sustained, higher rates for higher longer, the Fed will have to think about the tightening impact of those credit conditions on economic performance and would there be dangers of overshooting. And, and Mike, I think that goes exactly to your point is that they're probably right. seeing these that, that higher for longer rhetoric now potentially running into some headwinds. Yeah, I, I think that's sustained. And did, did they already overshoot? And are they okay with yields dropping half a percent? Well, maybe they don't want them to drop 3%, Yeah, half a percent may be okay. Yeah. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about uh, Goldman Sachs, because Goldman Sachs says, hey, don't worry about a thing. Not only is there no recession coming, next year, 2024, will be an everything bull market again. I kind of like that idea because it certainly make my job easy. But we'll talk about the reality of that when we come back from the break with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. There is no need for a recession, so says Goldman Sachs. Now, Mike, I'm going to read a couple of things here. I want you to to think about what I say here when I, I'm going to get into some return forecast of what Goldman Sachs says for next year and then tell me the problem that you immediately see <laughs> from these return forecasts, uh, particularly in the areas where these returns are coming from. But hang on with me for a second. Despite the good news on this is Goldman Sachs, despite the good news on growth and inflation in 2023, concerns about a recession among forecasters haven't declined much. Even in the U.S., which has outperformed so clearly on growth in the past year, the chart shows that the median forecasters still estimates a probability of around 50% for a recession in the next 12 months. That is down only modestly from 65% seen in late 2022. Far above our own probability of 15% chance of recession, down from 35. Now, they then go on to kind of lay out the return forecast for next year. They're expecting now, I'm just going to read to you, you know, this is just from their chart. Um, I'm using my screen right now for Mike's face so i can't show you the chart uh, but just follow along with me uh we'll play the at home game as well commodities are expected to be up 19 percent roughly these are round numbers in 2024 global equities including domestic equities up 
12.5% next year. Global credit, up 10%. Treasury bonds are going to be up about 7%. And cash is going to be yielding roughly almost 6%. So, now... Think about these returns. Commodities up nearly 20%. Equities up nearly 15%. Yields, you know, uh, bond prices up uh, roughly about 7.5%. And cash yielding over 5 Is there anything that jumps out to you, Mike, right up front that may be problematic about those return estimates? Yeah, there's actually a few things. If commodities are up, what did you say, 20%? Roughly. Inflation is an issue. Yeah. <laughs> The Fed will be keeping rates where they are, if not raising them. Mm -hmm. But then you said that that yields will be down 7%. Right. They're probably using the 10-year bond, 10-year note, because that's what most people use when they talk about bonds. If that note is up 7% in price, its yield is down 1% from where it's at today. Right. So if the Fed is hiking rates or just keeping them where they're at, and 10-year notes fall another percent, the yield curve is then deeply inverted again, beyond where it was at its at its lowest point, meaning that banks are not lending a dime. Right. Meaning <laughs> that banks are probably struggling to make money. There uh, could be more defaults. And for an economy driven by credit, there's not going to be any credit. Right. And, but, and this is kind of my, this is, I had to chuckle when I was looking at these returns. I was like, even your own return estimates don't support this idea of a no recession scenario. <laughs> right. But right. Hey, it's I, Goldman I Sachs make... and, you know, they're always bullish. So, Well, they sell stocks for a living. Yeah, of You'd course. You'd expect nothing less. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I just think it's funny. Right. They're, they're, you know, we can predict a lot of things. We can predict a soft landing. But with a soft landing, I think that entails that inflation goes away. And if inflation goes away it's going to be hard to see commodity prices up 20%. Right. It's the commodity ones that really stick out. Right. Um, that, that's the one that really just jumped out front. You know, because, you know, just even, Mike, remember, it was just, what, a month or so ago, you and I are sitting here talking about the, maybe two months ago now, um, you know, we were talking about the the commentary from Goldman Sachs, in particular, talking about $150 barrel oil because of, you know, what was, you know, kind of brewing in the Middle East, et cetera. Um, and then when, of course, when, uh, you know, rockets started launching into Israel, the, the headlines were immediately, oh, oil price, because of that, oil prices are going to go to, you know, $200 a barrel. They're below 80 Right. You know, so a lot of these the uh, and so a lot of these theses that these, you know, and again, and, and I, I've been spending a lot of time, Mike, you don't know this, but I've spent a lot of time this week talking about narratives. And, you know, you and I have have been, you know, tackling these narratives just kind of week in, week out about, oh, it's the debt and the deficits. Nobody wants to buy our bonds. That's why interest rates are going up. And, you know, China's selling all their bonds. That's why our interest rates are going up. Um, you know, and these narratives are problematic because they're not true in most cases, but it's also not how markets actually function. So so in that same direction, my article that we just put out uh, yesterday goes back to, I think it's July of 2020. And it was a CNBC headline that said economists do not expect inflation. So I went back and looked at the period and my goal was to see why they got it so wrong. And bottom line was the economy was virtually shut down. The supply lines were shut down. There, there were so many 
supply side factors, stimulus was starting to get pumped into the economy at a rapid rate. The Fed was doing QE at, you know, twice the rate that uh, three times the rate they were doing it in 2008 during a, a massive financial crisis. Everything was so inflationary except for consumer demand. Consumer demand was weak. And the explanation was that there was going to be no demand. It didn't matter. The economy was shut down. No one was going to spend any money. I guess they forgot about Amazon. So, <laughs> so lo and behold, you know, the Fed's highest forecast for inflation, if you go back and look at mid-2020, where they thought it would be over the next few years was like, I think it was 2.2%. It hit close to 8% on their inflation measure. So you, you look today, and the whole narrative is that demand is strong and it's going to to keep the economy humming and everything else. Well, all the other factors that were the supply lines are all perfectly normal, you know, about perfectly normal. Now, the money supply is shrinking rapidly. Loans are not there's no credit. Credit creation is low. They're all deflationary and recessionary except for demand. So, again, as soon as the lag effect hits demand, that leg gets sweeped out of the table and we're in a potentially recessionary, deflationary or disinflationary environment. Yeah. And, and this is and this is again, this is the hard challenge, though, for us as portfolio managers and, and you know, just in, in general, just, you know, trying to look ahead is that. You know, you don't know exactly when that lag effect right. is going to catch up, and you don't know when it's going to impact. And 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 it always and this is the then this is the the huge challenge. You've got to be very careful of this. Is looking at current economic data, like the GDP, as, as an example. So we had just had four point nine percent growth in the third quarter of GDP uh, and GDP in the third quarter. Clearly, no recession, right? Right now, uh, Atlanta Fed says we're running about two point one percent growth uh, in the fourth quarter. Clearly, no sign of recession. The problem, though, is is that it's when we get down the road and we look back, and this is the same case. We were we were growing at above two percent growth in December of two thousand seven. A year later, in December two thousand eight, we found out we were in recession. December of two thousand seven. So right. you've got to be really careful. You don't. The the problem with saying okay, we're going to be in a recession, absolutely for sure. Mike and I don't know that. Saying we're going to be absolutely in a recession next year. Is is a risk because if you bank your whole portfolio on being in a recession next year, there is a there is a possibility we could avoid a recession because you know there's and we talked about the employment situation. You know we had fired half the employees in the country. We 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 hired them back following the pandemic, but we didn't really overstaff. So we may we may have a slowdown in the economy without a big huge rise in unemployment. It's possible. I'm not saying it's it's definitely going to be the case, but that's that is a possibility. So, you know, from managing a money perspective and managing your narrative, you know, you've got to be careful of looking at economic data, looking at interest rates and saying, absolutely for sure this is going to happen. Leave some room for possibilities that we do have a soft landing or that maybe a recession is delayed until 2025, right? Um, you know, we'll eventually have a recession at some point. The question is always the timing. And, you know, you can be on the wrong side of that trade for a very long time before that, that event eventually occurs. Mike? Right. It, it's really hard to separate your fundamental kind of macroeconomic views from your investment views. And 
you have to follow the trends in the markets. You can believe in what they're saying or what they're trying to tell you or not believe in them. But at the end of the day, the market is the market and the market drives the market. The economy, if we are going into recession, the market will tell us, will give us signals. We're going to get signals. But you have to a lot of times be very uncomfortable because you have differing opinions on what the markets are doing and what you think the economy is doing. And the economy is a massive economy. It's very dynamic. It's global. And the Fed has a lot of influence over it. So it's easy to call for a recession. I think what Goldman did was very hard mm -hmm. to say there's only a 15 percent chance of recession. I think calling for a recession is easy. So we constantly have to challenge ourselves to say, well, how is Goldman right? Maybe they're not right on the commodity side of it, but mm -hmm. are, could they be right that we have a soft landing, that the economy grows two to three percent next year, that inflation comes down, that maybe even the Fed lowers rates because inflation is back to two percent and because they're lowering rates, bond yields come down and stocks go to the moon. So. Do I think it's going to happen? No, but but it's something you have to spend time on and think about well, and yeah, consider. But, dude, Mike, they're not a, stupid people at Goldman. I know you're just, but you're always bearish. That's your problem. So, <laughs> you know, uh, but no, this and that's and, and this is the problem with a lot of these narratives. You know, it's, it's back to the bond scenario real quick. I uh, just heard a guy yesterday who wants to buy our bonds with you know with yields where they are and the amount of debt we're issuing. You can't forget that at some point, if needed, the Federal Reserve is going to step in and start buying bonds again. They may not be buying bonds right now. That doesn't mean they're not ever going to buy bonds again. So as a last resort in the event to bail out the economy, you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to re-implement quantitative easing if they need to. So right. just keep that the in government, mind. Go ahead. The interest expense on government debt just passed a trillion. Mm -hmm. Everyone... Jerome Powell, uh, Janet Yellen, everyone knows that is not sustainable and it's going to head to two trillion pretty soon. So the Fed will step in and do something. Absolutely. Hey, Mike, thanks so much. That wraps up the show for today. Get by the website. Mike's latest article is out on the website now. Uh, if you want to read that, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Subscribe to our latest newsletter. Make sure if you're watching this channel, we really need some help. Click on the link to like this uh, video as well as subscribe to the channel. We appreciate it very much. And we'll see you back here tomorrow for Financial Fitness Friday.